Hi, I'm Rico Tice, a pastor of a church called All Souls in London. Most of us wonder, is there something more to life? The Finding More podcast tells the stories of 11 people who asked that question and found the answer. In this episode, we spoke to Deb. Deb grew up in South Africa and lived her life for so long, constantly feeling like she was on rocky ground, insecure about her family's safety and health. But one day, as she got high, she started to read the Bible. Is there something more to life? It's time to find out. Good Friday, 2002, in Bloemfontein, South Africa. Families were streaming into the church in the bright golden sunshine of a beautiful blue sky morning. And outside, on the street, looking desperately thin and dressed all in black, stood a woman nervously smoking cigarette after cigarette. Sixteen years on, that woman, Deb, relives the moment. All these shiny, happy people were walking into church with their gleaming hair and bright-coloured clothes, whereas I felt like I walked around behind my own personal prison bars. In that moment, I felt this heart-aching longing to be like them. There was an innocence and a life and a light to them that I wanted. I just wished I could unlive my life and not be who I was anymore. Even though Deb grew up in a fairly typical household... She had never really felt like a shiny, happy kid. I always remember feeling that this planet wasn't my home, that somehow I'd been dropped in the wrong family. At the same time, I was always worried that my parents were going to die or get divorced. I had this thing where if my dad was out late, I wouldn't go to sleep until he was home, because I thought that if I fell asleep while he was out, then he would crash and die. So I would lie awake and wait until I saw his headlights sweep into the driveway. I guess I really needed to know who was running the show, but I suspected that nobody was. I certainly didn't think that God was. At the same time as being insecure, Deb had an adventurous spirit, or as she calls it now, a rebellious streak, that liked to push the boundaries. Deb sums up her attitude to life as a young adult as, never say no, Try everything once. Sleep when you're dead. While the cool crowd played beach volleyball, Deb and her friends smoked weed on the side of the pitch. But on the inside, I was still very insecure, wanting to be liked. So I hated being single, hated being alone, and that made me stay in some very dysfunctional romantic relationships. Deb describes her life in her twenties as crisis management. I was always lurching from one crisis to the next. I was always threatening to derail, but because I loved my job, that meant I more or less kept things together. My friends were addicted to party drugs, and although I tried them sometimes, I never really went all in. Alcohol was more my thing. But things did derail eventually. Deb was 30, and had just come back to South Africa, after working abroad for a couple of years. When I got home to Cape Town, I phoned up my friends and said it would be lovely to see everyone. They said, there's a huge trance party tonight, you'll see us all there, come along. As I walked in, one said, here's some ecstasy, and one said, here's a line of coke, and one said, here's some whiskey. That night, for the first time, 
I felt what ecstasy really did. I think it was because I was dancing. Very quickly, I began going clubbing with them every weekend. Then it was Wednesdays and the weekend. Then it was Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays and the weekend. Things spiralled further out of control when Deb got into a relationship with a guy who was involved in heroin. Eventually, he persuaded her to try it. It didn't take long for her to develop an addiction. From then, it was impossible to keep things together, and Deb eventually lost her two freelance jobs. After Deb had been on heroin for over a year, and a month after losing her second freelance contract, the world was rocked by the 9-11 terror attack on the Twin Towers in New York. Deb remembers the moment. My birthday was a few days before. I'd had a whole weekend partying with all my friends, and I'd had literally every single kind of drug possible. By the 11th, I was just starting to recover. Someone messaged me to say, switch on the TV. So I did. I can remember standing on my futon in my dressing gown, with my eyes glued to the TV, just watching the replay. First one tower then the next. And I could hear this voice to the side of my head, inside my ear, saying, You see that, my girl? You see that? You're going down. I just knew that on the screen in front of me, I was seeing where my life was going. Destruction. Absolute destruction. It was the shock Deb needed to get her out of Cape Town, to kick the heroin habit. She and her boyfriend arranged a house-sit for some of his family members in the middle of nowhere so they could go cold turkey together. Deb audibly groans as she relives the agony of coming off heroin. I spent three days lying in my room, wanting to die. Then the first time I ventured out of the room, I just sat on the couch in the living room. I couldn't walk for very long, couldn't sit up for very long. I was so physically weak. And I remember seeing the R.E.M. song on the TV, everybody hurts, and I just thought, yes, absolutely. Now I was sober, I could see the horror of who I was and what I had done. I had nothing. I'd sold everything I had to get out of Cape Town. All I had with me was my two cats, my computer, and a backpack. I hadn't spoken to my family in months. I'd cut myself off from my friends. I had trashed my career. I'd lost any sense that I'd achieved anything with my life. Here I was, 32 years old and absolutely finished and washed out. There was a deep sense of shame, and I thought, what's the point? What is there worth living for? I started looking for a way to end my life, but I didn't know how. After two months of total misery, one of the companies Deb used to work for invited her back to Cape Town for a week to finish off a project. She arranged to stay in a friend's flat while he was away, but the first thing she did when she got there was to call the dealer. This guy did delivery, which was convenient. I was looking for matches to light a candle so that I could chase the dragon. You burn a little bit of heroin powder on tinfoil and inhale the fumes. I was scrabbling in this drawer, and I found a little blue New Testament. As I got high, I decided to start reading it. I'd always mocked the Bible, but I'd never actually read it. Even though I was definitely heroin-hazed, I couldn't put it down. What she read was deeply disturbing. I was just flicking through, but wherever I looked, I saw condemnation. I didn't see anything about a God of love. I didn't see anything about acceptance. The thing was, I already knew I'd done a bad thing with the heroine. 
I knew that it was bad on a social level. I knew that what I had done would bring shame to my family. But what dawned on me as I read that little New Testament was how deeply I had sinned against God. It was sin. It wasn't just an embarrassment. I had done wrong before God. I had taken this life he had given me and utterly driven it into the ground. I owed him an account for how I'd lived, and so I realised that I couldn't end my life, because if I died, I would stand before him. Death was no longer a way out. It was actually a way into much deeper trouble. This made sobering up for the second time at the end of her week in Cape Town even more excruciating. I was lying curled up on a mattress, unable to move, in absolute physical agony, like before. Only now I was in absolute soul anguish before God, too. It felt like every single cell of my body was on fire, like I was in the deepest, darkest place. It felt like I was lying beyond where even God could reach. It really was a sense of the outermost. She pauses and sighs as she searches for the words. Just aloneness and unreachableness. Now, as she looks back, Deb says something startling. It wasn't the heroine that got me into trouble with God. So what was it? The problem was my heart, which insisted that God was of no account and that I could live my life however I wanted. Before I went near any substances, I was just as ugly a person on the inside as I became on the outside. I was guilty of pride. I was guilty of selfishness. I told lies. I organised my universe to suit myself. So in a sense, the outer problem of a drug addiction was easier to deal with than the inner problem. That attitude, which is hard towards God, and puts itself first. I'd say now that I'm actually kind of grateful for the heroin addiction. Had my life not gone so spectacularly off the tracks, I might still be under the illusion that I was actually a good person. Because you can have a respectable job and a respectable family. But if you live your life without reference to God, never thinking about him, being completely indifferent to him, that's sin. That's an offence to God, because he made us, and he loves us, and wants a relationship with us. Not that Deb knew any of this as she slunk into the back of the church on that sunny Good Friday morning in 2002. By that stage, she was living in Bloemfontein, hundreds of miles from Cape Town, sleeping on her brother's couch, and had managed to get herself a part-time job. She had heard colleagues in the office talking about Easter and felt compelled to go to church. But when she got there, she felt extremely uncomfortable. I went in, eventually, and sat right at the back, on the end of the pew, near the door, so that if anybody spoke to me, I could just make a quick getaway. As the service started, I had no idea what to expect. There was some singing, and they said that it was Good Friday, the day that Christians remembered Jesus' death on the cross. Then they read from the Bible. Deb was riveted by the whole account of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion. She remembers the scene as he was hung on the cross to die being described. Those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Matthew 27, 39-42 Deb adds, 
I remember just being drawn into being right there and knowing I was one of the scoffers, one of those who mocked him. I started crying because I could see myself in all of that. I was sobbing. Then it got to the part where Jesus, right before he died, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And somehow, at that point, I realised that Jesus was forsaken, abandoned by God the Father, instead of me. He was being punished in my place. I had lived my whole life with this sense of homelessness. It was a fear of abandonment, really. And since coming off heroin, it felt like I was in a living hell. And at that point, I knew that Jesus had headed into hell and plucked me out. He was forsaken, so that I wasn't. He was abandoned, so that I wasn't. She shakes her head, almost in disbelief. I was just... overjoyed. Still sobbing, but at peace. From that point onward, there was no sense of guilt, because I knew Christ had dealt with my sin for me. So when I walked out of that church, as those huge wooden doors were pushed open, I walked out knowing that I was God's daughter. Towards the end of our time together, Deb's own daughter comes into the room, wanting the reassurance of a quick hug before dashing out again. It's a reminder of how much has changed for the woman chain-smoking outside that church. Deb and her husband have two children, both of whom are adopted. People always say that they're little mini-me's of my husband and me. It's bizarre, she laughs. Deb has stolen herself away to the attic to speak with me, hiding from the chaos of construction work going on downstairs. She and her husband have set up a little Christian school in their home and are turning some rooms into classrooms. It is, Deb admits, a strange time for a family like theirs to be investing in South Africa. People are emigrating in their droves because of the political unrest here. So why stay? It comes back to that Good Friday in 2002, or rather, what happened two days later, on Easter Sunday. We met on a little hillside for an outdoor service with the sun rising, and there was singing outside and the Bible was read, and there was very much a sense of life. It was such a joy. Deb explains that what gets her through tough times is one of the claims at the heart of Christianity. That after Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. The Bible says that on the Sunday morning after his execution, his followers found his tomb empty and then met Jesus for themselves, alive again. And that after 40 days of meeting and interacting with his followers, Jesus returned to heaven. Jesus is my risen Lord. He is alive. He is reigning as King and is with me by the presence of his Holy Spirit. She pauses. I think it probably speaks to that desire of mine, as a very young child, to know that someone is running the show. Someone is in charge. Jesus Christ. And one day, he's coming back to draw everything together, and put everything right, and I will be with him in eternity, face to face. This is what gives me comfort and joy when things are hard. And this, she says is what helps her make sense of South Africa today. My husband and I have such a sense that Christ our Lord wants us here, that he has stationed us here for this time in South African history. His kingdom is worth more to us than having a secure pension fund or knowing that life is safe. We are Christ's servants and we will remain posted where we are because what's coming is far more glorious than we can ever imagine. She's glad she stubbed out the final cigarette and headed into that church on Good Friday in 2002.
To find out more about Christianity Explored, visit christianityexplored.org. And to purchase the book Finding More, visit thegoodbook.co.uk forward slash finding more.